I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. War for the Planet of the Apes. this moment. The irony is we created you. And nature has been punishing us ever since. This is our last stand. And if we lose, It will be a planet of apes. Way back, way back, seven years ago now that I write this, in 2014, after my show changed from Digital Gonzo to Digital Drift, and Sharon became my regular weekly co-host, we covered every single Planet of the Apes movie, from the initial late 60s to mid-70s Quintology, Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston crying over the Statue of Liberty, Beneath the Planet of the Apes with the stupid world-destroying Alpha Omega bomb, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, where two ape astronauts go back in time to America in the present day 70s and are killed but leave their baby Caesar surviving, then four Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, when an adult Caesar leads a bloody ape revolt to overthrow their human captors. This was dialed back for the final edit, by the way, by a nervous studio with eyes on the righteous civil unrest in the streets at that point. And finally, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, a very slapdash clash between an ape army and a human army, which resolves itself too quickly and concluded the series dissatisfyingly. After covering those five films in a two-part show, we talked the Tim Burton reboot of Ort One, which ruined my 21st birthday with its nonsensical plot, moronic lead actor, its grab bag of cheaply shouted references, and forced, backward-assed attempt at a twist ending. Rick Baker's makeup was good, though, and it had Michael Clark Duncan, who we like. And then we covered the prequel reboot New Universe Rise of the Planet of the Apes from 2011, 10 years after Burton's spam-fisted reimagining, and 10 years ago in our time of recording this. It was a world apart in terms of understated, emotionally captivating, visually stunning, yet determinedly natural environments. A week later, we covered the sequel, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which was out in the cinema at that point. 
That second film takes place in the far, far off year of 2021, after a pandemic has ravaged the globe, precipitating the breakdown of society and the subsequent clash between a settlement of surviving humans and Caesar's family of apes. And as I said, seven years have gone by since then. We changed our brand from Digital Drift to School of Movies in 2015. Then in 2017, this third film emerged and concluded the trilogy, and we have meant to go back for years to finish it off ourselves. The only issue was always how tough it is to get through and how hard it is to say goodbye. Because this is a very satisfying, but at times grueling, close to a pretty much perfect trilogy. And I'm using the P word here, folks. Pretty much perfect. A low-key trio of blockbusters that encourage us to examine ourselves and attempt to understand humanity by presenting us with beings that aren't actually human. Just like I said in the Dawn episode, this is another anti-action movie. Rupert Wyatt directed the first film, and childhood buddy of J.J. Abrams, Matt Reeves, the second. And Reeves returns to direct film three in a similar fashion. So if you go back to film one, when young Caesar needs to break his friends out of monkey prison in the first film, we anticipate a fight. We hope that they succeed with the minimum of casualties. Dawn, however, sets up a scenario where negotiation and non-violent collaboration is absolutely possible. But the scars of the past run deep, and Koba, Caesar's lieutenant, cannot let go of his hatred of humans, seeing all of them as his abusers. And after he starts a vicious coup, the hatred and resentment, fear and reprisal can only magnify, escalate, multiply, and spread itself like a virus. This leaves the audience dreading explosive violence, which is extremely unusual for a summer blockbuster. We want, yeah, fight the robots, yeah, yeah, do the thing, do the, just, just big, whoa, action thing, it's just, hey, come on. We don't go, no, no, please, no, don't, no, 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 nobody fire a gun, nobody, nobody light that touch paper. Do not pull the pin out of that grenade. That's the opposite of popcorn. Like we, we have spent well over 10 years now talking about movies to suggest, hey, the, the, the things that we like to pass off as popcorn sometimes have a lot more below the surface. These films so obviously have so much more going on below the surface. We barely have to dig. It's right there. It's text. And film three retains that. Dedicated human soldiers are now in play, and Caesar embarks on a tragedy-fueled quest for vengeance, which, in turn, endangers his people. So, we're going to go point to point. Again, it's just Sharon and I. We decided we were just going to finish as we began. Conclude the apes. Just the two of us. Again. So, starting off with the human soldiers. I had forgotten how, I suppose, different to... Dawn this felt because we, we, we started Dawn with um, the elk hunt and now we're, we're with a bunch of what looked like Vietnam soldiers with crap written all over their hats like monkey killer and uh, you know bedtime for bonzo mm. and they call uh, their their helpers donkeys and they're, they're assisted by turncoat apes so across the board, how are humans portrayed in this film? Since, uh, honestly, they, uh, there, there are differences in this to Dawn, mm. I'd say. Okay. Well, 
for a start, the way this opens and I, the way I put it in my notes, and I'm, this is not quite right, but I've written down that it's the antithesis of the anti-action scenes of Dawn. It's not, but it's, it's being done for a point. This film opens demonstrating what dehumanisation is and what it does. So you've gone from regular civilian population in Dawn to, like you said, trained, dedicated soldiers who have been instructed and shown how to dehumanise their opponents. And the opening massacre of the apes has a there is a casualty to the loss of life that we have not seen so far because when we had the big battle scene at the end of rise there was a build up to that yeah. and a lot of michael giacchino music telling us this is wrong this shouldn't be happening yeah, absolutely but the the purpose of this opening is that when things get to this point where large significant loss of life is going on and specifically is happening very quickly and isn't stopping, there's a degree of desensitization that is necessary, otherwise you can't, you can't, we, like, if we didn't desensitize to a degree, we'd just turn this off and stop watching. If you didn't desensitize soldiers in war, they wouldn't be able to do the thing that you need them to do. Now, the argument of whether or not they should be doing the thing that you want them to do in the first place is a whole separate thing. It's a good idea to equate this with Vietnam because that's very much... It's very much a case of, look, if you soldiers get out of the jungle and go elsewhere, there ain't going to be any conflict. Yeah. And also, to open with the Obviously, in Vietnam, the soldiers didn't have the fucking choice. They were drafted and forced out there. But to open with the humans... Consciously and cognitively uh, desensitizing themselves to the harm that they're bringing to the apes. It then allows a compare and contrast to Caesar, to whom every life in his group is important. He knows everybody by name. They are all crucial. Every loss is a huge loss to him because every loss is a little failure. And he is... Well, every loss is a loss. It's a, it's a loss of life, but it's a loss of that person. It's yeah. a loss of that member of the Precisely. tribe. That, the, the body is having pieces cut off it. Yeah. And Dreadfully also, and painfully. Absolutely. And also, it, it, because Caesar still has that, uh, that sense of seeing everybody as an individual and everybody as, as being a person in and of themselves, not someone who is disposable for the cause... That allows him to still see the the war between humans and apes as Cobra's war, not his. Mm. Because he very clearly makes the point, Cobra started this. Cobra is now dead. If it's if this was a personal conflict, we should be able to just that's it, it's done and separate. But the humans will not let it go. And specifically, the human at the top of this particular tree will not let it go. There's a lot of um, Caesar having to reevaluate how he feels about apes and how he feels about humans uh, in in this and in in all of them, frankly. Uh, his conclusion at the end of Dawn was he shouldn't have trusted Cobra because 
he effectively put ape above human and thought we are better than them in terms of we will make the right decision when they make the wrong one because yeah. he's seen humans make the wrong decision over and over again and it just doesn't make any sense to him ultimately he's incredibly observant and he's very good at evaluating uh, a scenario and unfortunately he had a blind spot when it came to cobra because he couldn't comprehend the depths of cobra's hatred because he was never abused and tortured and, and torn to pieces and put back together the way this lab rat monkey was. Mm. Yeah. And he couldn't, he couldn't comprehend the depths of hatred in there and how Cobra could never trust. That the moment, like, it, it had been going fine, the moment humans turn up, that's when Cobra starts to snap. Human work! Like, Cobra, between, like, spent 10 years between the Golden Gate Bridge and where we are in Dawn, effectively being Caesar's, not maybe not his best friend or, or second best friend, but maybe his third best friend, because you got Maurice and Rocket. He's, he's in the tier of generals. Yes, yeah. but he's trusted. Hmm. You are not a... Trust, by the way, turns up repeatedly in this, and I've got a lot to say about trust. But that's the thing. Caesar you know, ends the movie coming back to his his people and uh, you know, in this kind of Moses messianic way, which they definitely follow up on in this. Like He is the one that they look to to, uh, to save them. But he comes back with a slightly more... I'm not even sure anymore whether apes better than people, people better than apes, and you know, because he's just met a lot of really decent human beings who are like, we're not all like this. And he really wants to believe that. Mm. And he carries that with him. There's an unspecified amount of years. Some of it say it's five years, some of it say it's two years. I'd, I'd say go with the two years because his second son, Cornelius, is tiny mm. still. And if you remember in the first film, Caesar was three when he first left the house and got injured trying to uh, play with that girl's bicycle and was attacked by the neighbor. And he's bigger than Cornelius is here. So I think the intention is it's supposed to be two years after dawn. It feels longer because Caesar looks a lot older. Mm. He's got kind of, he's got this graying Abe Lincoln underbeard, which is really kind of, he's got a, a weariness about him as well. He's been on edge for a long time and then being attacked is obviously making him more fraught. Yeah. But he begins the movie hoping that if he sends back the humans that they don't kill, that that will be a message, that, that the humans will then decide to go elsewhere. Mm. So he's presuming that these tricked-out soldiers with their camo and their automatic weapons... And their slurs on their helmets. ...are coming, It well, none of which he has any frame of reference for. That's the thing. But he's interpreting them as coming for revenge because of what Cobra did uh, and, and started with the, the humans that were living around the dam and honestly i think that does reinforce the idea that it's only been a couple of years since that happened yeah um the the virus has mutated and started to pass around again fairly quickly but we know how fast viruses can move so yeah yeah we do yeah we do annie <laughs> i was uh, we were listening to um 
Matt Reeves' uh, uh, commentary. Very insightful guy. Um, similar way of speaking to J.J. Abrams. Obviously, they came from the same part of the country and they had the same kind of... Uh, I think J.J.'s a little bit more excitable. Mm. It's yeah. difficult to not see them as like Stranger Things kids. Yeah. Well, they've been <laughs> friends since they were in their early teens. Yeah. So. But Matt uh, was talking about the Spanish flu and he talked about a new strain of it which had mutated and uh, how people didn't think it was the same thing as Spanish flu. And uh, he was saying, oh, this happens and, you know, uh, pandemics could uh, have a changeable effect on the world. And I was sitting, sitting there looking like the Wonka meme going, please tell us about these pandemics mutating, Matt Reeves, <laughs> in 2017. Hmm, indeed. But yeah, so the the reason that this particular group of soldiers have become so single-minded and obsessed with wiping out the ape population in the area is because of a cult leader style figurehead. A, uh, somebody who has taken it upon themselves to make... Uh, military strategic decisions but has at some point started to diverge from whatever collective decisions are being made throughout America that we are never privy to. We don't know what's going on in the rest of the country. We just know that at the end the rest of the military show up and start shooting the shit out of Woody Harrelson and his boys because they've clearly gone mad. And there is a definite, as you say, cult-like feel to what he's doing. He's injecting them with despair every day, but they're also suggesting that their hope lies in taking away all of their emotion Mm. and just pushing forwards with just, you know, doing the right thing and shutting off all of your feelings. Yeah. So as an individual... Doing the rational thing. Indeed. So as an as an individual, the colonel has made certain decisions mm. about how he's going to instruct his men to behave towards the apes nearby, but he has come to represent something far larger than that, as Cobra came to represent something far larger than his personal vendetta against humans. Mm. Koba was hurt and damaged and tortured and came to represent kind of a righteous fury of nature that ultimately would destroy everything if it was allowed to reign unchecked. The colonel is going down a similar path. He has made a personal decision because of something that happened to him as an individual, but he is using it to make himself and his unit more representative of humankind as a whole, which, as, as we've discussed, you don't find out until the end that that is absolutely not the case. And it, it begins very early on with the fact that they're using, and this is something that they took from the very, 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 very bad second um, Planet of the Apes original movies, um, there is an underground bomb that has the Alpha and Omega symbol on it, and they use this as part of their... Um, Iconography. We are the Alpha and the Omega. Exactly. Uh, We're Omega males. There is ultimately... I I love the fact that that's one of the very early things that they open with in the movie because it really lays out very early on, check out the hubris on these guys. They are literally comparing themselves to God. This is not going to end well. There is that. But again, like with, with cult status, you need to uh, keep people in this, this, this state of religious fervor mm. where they are always panicking and yeah. you present the stability. Absolutely. If you're, if you're operating a cult, you can't afford for people to be calm and chilled and thinking. Because very, very quickly, they are going to conclude you are talking out of your ass. 
In other words, you keep them in a state of extremely heightened emotion yeah. whilst telling them emotions are bad. Absolutely. Because and that then when they direct that panicking, angry emotion in the direction you want, you tell them that was the rational thing to do. Indeed. Because ultimately, and this is this is a I don't want to call it a flaw, it's it's a feature, not a bug, but ultimately humans make their decisions based on how they feel. We make our decisions emotionally. If we were rational, no one would have ever voted for Trump. He was incompetent. There's all sorts of things we wouldn't have done if we were rational. But ultimately... Rationalist, eh? A man of science? We allow the fact that we have cognitive faculties to inform on our emotional decision-making, but we can only do that if we're safe, if we, if we feel like we are not being threatened. Because if we are being threatened, we literally don't have the time to go through the process of rational thought. You need your emotions to kick in fast and operate quickly, otherwise the bear is going to eat you. you what you're implying here is that these, uh, the things that we do that seem almost baffling to us date back far into our past. Yeah, and this is why... Into our body's original... Not even original, just one version of us that uh, uh, that was kind of a constant for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, mm. and then we just rushed through modern society. But it still is, and that's the thing: the the um, this separation of uh, through metaphorical terms of the lizard brain, which is our basic survival instincts, which says just do the thing that will get you out of the way of the the threat. Don't think about anything else. Just just get out of the way of the threat. Um, and the mammal brain, which is the emotional, uh, okay, we're going to get out of the way of the threat, but we've got to sort of live beyond the immediate. So that this is where you're kind of... Um, Thinking of the past as well. There's, there's a little bit of extra, well, this happened before, and so I'm going to make a decision yeah. based on something that was a day or two ago, or I want this to happen in a couple of days, therefore I'm going to do this. It's the instincts that lead you to nurture your children, that lead us to, to bond together as social creatures, that, that kind of level of stuff. The human brain is really is like the purely cognitive bit, but it's fucking useless without the other two. It, it can't do anything. It is a processing machine. It is not an action machine. We need all three, and they have to be working together for us to be fully healthy and maximising the potential that we have because we have all three layers. Adding on the uh, apes, the donkeys, the ones that uh, serve the humans, uh, to begin with, I was like, oh, that's disappointing and depressing that they would you know side with the ones who want to wipe out their own kind but it's a really great way of making the plot much more complex and much more uh less straightforward less easy because mm -hmm. if they're helping the humans then it's it's well for a start it means that the humans are gamely allowing them to help so that they can say look see your buddies are helping us that means we're definitely going to win it's mm. symbolic well also there's it allows you to show a couple of other things about the humans first of all they are still insisting on treating these creatures as animals. They are treating them as beasts of burden. They use them for carrying stuff. They, uh, you, there's, there's a, a moment quite early on where the soldiers are using hand gestures with each other. These apes are perfectly capable of understanding those hand gestures. Mm. But they don't use hand gestures to communicate with the apes. There is no communication going on. They grab, they pull, they yell, 
that's how they communicate with um, with the apes. They are really bringing them back down to the level of animals. Whether they're doing this because they're aware of their uh, in increased intelligence of the fact that they are evolving and simply want to step on that mm. or whether they just haven't come out of the, of the phase of thinking of, of them as animals it, it's, they, they treat them the same way as you see someone in the park treating their dog shittily yeah absolutely like you don't have to behave like this at all in fact if you're kind to your dog and actually give him proper or her proper boundaries the dog will be like oh, okay i understand because dogs don't understand nuance yeah they're like uh if i do this then this happens uh, they they prefer like if you tell a dog sometimes you can do this the dog's be like what the f <laughs> what do you <laughs> that mean makes sometimes no sense. <laughs> what but you mean i can sit on this chair mm. but not that chair what but apes have much more of an understanding of nuance mm. in they... particular these apes yeah and they can, uh, they themselves can can work stuff out. Yeah. But there's w one particular ape called Winter, who is one of Caesar's group and ends up betraying all of them because he's scared. Mm, yeah, there's always um, a subtle reason given for why they behave that way. One thing I did notice actually, there's of the apes that work with the humans or betray the other apes in some way. Um, they are often gorillas. And I wondered about that because there's there's a couple of reasons why that could have been. Uh, not One, not only are they gorillas, they are often uh, distinctive in their appearance. Donkey is red mm -hmm. and winter is white. Mm -hmm. So that aesthetically gives you a way to make them stand out from the crowd, which allows you to individualise them and, and recognise them separate and apart from everyone else. Yeah. The other thing is that the gorillas are more similar in frame and size to the men. So there is also that possibility. Mm. Or it could have just been coincidence. Caesar's plan, uh, when, when they get back to their base, which has now been moved from uh, the Redwood Forest to behind a waterfall in this spectacular sort of internal cave that they only made part of and did some extremely clever camera tricks to to, to really fill this place out. Yeah, we were talking... We're not going to harp on about the Oscars. We will say Andy Serkis three times over should have been given Best Actor for Caesar and three times over he did not receive it and this was his performance of a lifetime. I mean, if he can do better than Caesar and Gollum, brilliant. I look forward to seeing that happen, but I would be very happy just considering this the performance of a lifetime. Um, but we noted that sometimes the tech is so on point, so smooth and so convincing that the Academy look at it, look at real life and think, well, that's good effects, or look at effects and go, well, that's good real life or maybe model work, I don't know, question mark which effectively comes down to if it's so good that it fools the naked eye and reality and effects, whether practical or digital, are blended so seamlessly that you don't know when something is being performed, how can you give an award for it? <laughs> You're like, I'm going to give you an award because it seems like a lot of that stuff didn't happen, but it probably did. I don't know. But as I said to you, this is not going to change until Andy Serkis and people who've worked with him, because he is absolutely the lead name in this 
in performance this coaching. style of performance. And until he and other people who know the ins and outs of it, who know how to discern when this is something that is coming from the person mm. and when this is something that's coming from the tech crew and how to decide what thing they are so impressed by that it deserves an award until people like that are part of the academy mm. and can intelligently judge it, it's not going to happen. How about I just send the academy a letter that just simply says, I can assure you Andy Serkis is a really good actor. Mm. And just full stop that and just see if they, they think to themselves, oh, maybe it is more him than the monkey suit. Um, <laughs> it just It's kind of crazy. But uh, it's worth noting because so much of this film I look at and even I can't tell where reality ends and a fabricated heightened version of reality mm. begins. Yeah, the, the avalanche at the end of this is a good example of that, actually. The, that's one scene in the whole thing. A lot of this they shot on location. They used the, uh, the suits with the performance capture out of doors where they do the multiple passes so that they can colour the... the um, actor's body out and fit the the cg makeup in effect around them um so a lot of it was actually filmed as any other on location film would have been made but the avalanche scene which looks incredibly realistic was totally virtual that was done green screen and yet the shape of water won best picture which is, it's a brilliant, beautiful film doing very similar things. Yeah, what then follows is Caesar deciding that uh, since his son, Blue Eyes, and uh, his old friend Rocket have now returned from a scouting mission and found a promised land, a place in Colorado with a beautiful lake where they can all go and live and that the humans can't get to, that they're going to migrate there and they're just going to go and um, be out of, the, out of this zone of combat and... Hopefully they won't be followed, and it's a, it's a it's a gesture of moving beyond a war. He absolutely does not want to be engaged in this fight. He'll lose everyone. And then the humans show up in the middle of the night, sneak into the nest, and murder his wife and son. And Giacchino plays a song that he just called the Lost Theme to begin with. Not to be confused with the Lost theme, which he also composed. <laughs> that was really where the world first got a taste of what Giacchino could do with those moments of just catching you off guard. Yeah, It's an incredibly sad piece of music. It's called Exodus Wounds because Michael Giacchino never met a pun he couldn't shunt into even the saddest of tracks. It's, it's fucking heartbreaking because we've seen this family slowly coming together and everything that, that, that Caesar was about and then the closest parts of him are torn away in this like senseless botched campaign. They were going for him. They just killed the ones who were in the nest. Mm. It's an atrocity beyond words. Cornelius, his little two-year-old chimp son, survives, and that's what he has to keep going for. But because he loses his immediate family, it breaks the tethers to his extended family. And with this loss comes a loss of direction, a loss of reason to move forwards, which sends him off on a mounted John Ford Western Kurosawa movie samurai mission of revenge 
to find the colonel that he saw in the waterfall and kill him in vengeance for this abominable crime. And it's just a personal, singular thing he decides to do on his own and not to uh, drag everyone else along and just says to everyone else, you go find the promised land, I'm going to do this. And it is ultimately shown in the movie to be the wrong thing to do. He makes the wrong decision here. He should have attempted to preserve everybody who was still alive. He lost some key, key parts of himself, but he effectively abandons them all. Mm. And they're like, when the music rises up, the rest of the apes are like, where's he going? We don't understand. We've had Caesar since the beginning. And there's an absolutely practical element to the, the, I don't quite know how to say, the wrongness of his decision as well. We find out at the end of Act 2 that the apes that have gone without him and his three key generals who come after him because they don't want to let him go alone. Of course you are, sir, and I'm coming with you. Absolutely. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful moment. But it's left them without strong leadership. There's a very valid reason for all three of them to come with him. Luca, who is the head of the guards... Uh, Maurice, who is his conscience and has been with him from the beginning, and Rocket, who is effectively his right-hand man, who has also been with him from the beginning, and has a connection with him in the sense that they've both lost a child, and he understands completely why he's going to do this. They all go with him, but that means that when the apes are caught by the army later on, Not only are they without the leadership that might help them get away, they are also without their key negotiator. Caesar can talk to the humans. There are very few other apes that can. They know sign language and they have a a handful of words between them. They use vocalization to emphasize the things that they're saying when they're very emotional, but they don't, they can't talk in a way that the humans, particularly these humans, would recognise as communication. Now, believe me, I'm not saying at this point that if Caesar had been with them when the army had fallen upon them, that he would have been able to talk them out of it. But he at least would have been able to get across to them, these are not animals. These are not just something that you can exert your force on. And they they don't have that. They don't have that facility because he's not there. It is really important, though, the scene where uh, Luca, Rocket and Maurice tell him that they are coming with him, in particular because that that unit, that small group of, of apes who are all dedicated to Caesar and to each other, then gives you a very sharp relief against the colonel who is totally isolated, entirely out of his own doing, but he is alone. He has no one with whom to discuss his plans. He can't reflect any of them. He can't come to the conclusion that, okay, maybe that was a stupid idea, which Caesar gets the opportunity to do. He may not always make the right decision ultimately, but he does have other people around him that he can filter those choices through. The colonel has none of that. He puts himself on a path and then allows nothing near him that could divert him from that path and that ultimately is his undoing he's like a crazed youtuber with a flock of followers who will literally do and listen to everything he says and agree with it and fight to the death anyone who disagrees Mm. with it yeah but he doesn't have any anyone to modulate but the the outcome of that is that he's actually 
drawn to Caesar ultimately because Caesar is a leader as well. Caesar is pretty much the only person who he will allow himself to see as even close to being an equal. And as a result, when Caesar comes before him, he finds himself spewing his entire plan and thought process because that's he desperately wants that. He desperately wants that connection. He has no idea that he wants that, but he does because he has isolated himself so much and for so long. There's a huge influence of Apocalypse Now in this. Oh, yes. Rather than being sent for reasons he doesn't really know why, like Martin Sheen, uh, Caesar has a serious vendetta to follow up. But the colonel is Colonel Kurtz. He's got this lead. He's he's leading his own crazed uh, cult and has to be stopped by Caesar. On the way, they find a little girl called Nova, which is like a little Easter egg for the uh, uh, fans of the series since... um, uh, Linda Harrison's uh, character in Planet of the Apes was uh, Nova. She was a wordless uh, white girl who um, Heston kind of befriends and shoves around a little bit. And she's just kind of totty is probably the best way of putting it for that era. She's also like in, indicative of a, a, a worrying trend, especially in the 60s, of men liking their women very, very quiet and wordless and born sexy yesterday. It's also got like a whiff of that whole, like, go to Africa, meet the tits out tribes women, and everything that entails. But, National Geographic has a lot to answer for. Yeah, Nova wasn't much of a character in that first one. This little girl is a real character. She's... Uh, succumbed to a second version of the virus, this mutation that uh, we mentioned before, which we theorized um, attacks the speech centers of your brain. Mm. So, uh, Well, the frontal lobes generally, because it clearly has an impact on people's ability to think and process. Yes. But specifically, yeah, the the speech processing centres that allow them to communicate Mm. verbally. It's effectively, uh, in the the original film, it was kind of a switcheroo where the apes were sort of like stroking their beards and wondering what was to do and having councils and meetings and things. Uh, And the humans were sort of just running around with fur pants going, I want to eat bananas! And that's about it. Mm. And they, they really don't know what's going on. They're still a bit more straight-backed than uh, the, their ape equivalents in, in our time. But effectively, it's like, what if the monkey spanked us? Mm. And that's that's what the original Pierre Boulle book is. Yeah. Humans appear to have regressed mentally mm. in massive leaps and bounds, but not had a, a physical regression of equivalent... Um, speed. Well, one assumes that the writer of the original novel, like I said, the French guy, um, wanted it to be like, what if you could bring humans down to about as smart as apes in a zoo and have what? What? La planète. La branche. It was called, the French novel was called La planète des singes. Well, of course it was. Planet of the Monkeys. The Planet of the Monkeys. Anyway. He was French. Obviously it did. I apologise. That shouldn't have made me laugh as much as it did. It's important that we go back to the original what the intention was. It was to get the the humans down to a, a lower level than we are currently at and and the apes up to a higher level. That, mm. that was effectively it. So now when the apes pick up Nova along the way, they also, I think they shoot her dad or certainly her, uh, the, a guy who's chopping firewood and is um, protecting her. Does she he, react? He gets shot. She runs away and hides right. and then comes out again. Right. Okay. Maybe just a human. Uh, either way, um, he hasn't yet succumbed to this, uh, but probably would have in the next few days. It works very fast. 
she's core to the movie because she's someone for the apes to look after and to begin with Caesar's glaring at her because he now hates all humans she but Maurice is uh, incredibly gentle and nurturing and sort of takes the uh, the child and um and she's uh, played by a girl called Amia Miller who is extremely physically expressive mm, yeah I think there's there's a suggestion that the reason Nova does not seem to react to the same uh, to the virus in the same way as the adults around her who've got it mm. is because she's a child ultimately she regresses yes but she's not regressing she doesn't as have far. a spot to go she's i mean she's what maybe 10 11 and Back she's to behaving like a toddler exactly which means that she's not going to be as distressed because she's not going to feel the loss of something that she didn't really have in spades in the first mm. place and also she will be much more able to through observation and uh nonverbal communication set off down a different path of being able to talk to the apes than the humans who are largely just seem to be freaking out over the fact that they can't they can't talk and yeah. think the way they used to anymore. This ties in with the fact that when they uh, catch up with the colonel and, and find what he's been leaving in his uh, path, uh, he's been shooting and executing the soldiers in his uh, ranks who appear to have come down with this uh, mutated strain. If he, he has decided that uh, it is a fate worse than death to, uh, to, to be afflicted with this. Leaves a whole bunch of bodies in the snow, one of whom isn't yet dead, but is bleeding badly and is panicking and freezing to death as well. And is it Caesar who kills him? I don't know. I can't remember. I believe it's Caesar who kills him, and that is seen... That is framed within the film, at least at that point, as an act of mercy. Put a pin in that, folks. We then get to meet Steve Zahn as Bad Ape, and I wish someone else had given him a different name throughout this film, because Nova gets a name. She gets given a little badge off of a Chevy Nova to, to name her Nova. No one wants to call Bad Ape anything but Bad Ape. Mm. And this is... He's so necessary, because at this point, our hearts have been broken repeatedly throughout this series. It hurts so much. We watch these over the course of a weekend, and... We need a little laughter. And he's so he's an ape from a zoo far away from Caesar's family and has developed intelligence himself as it, he is evidential of the virus having the reverse effect upon apes and actually making them considerably smarter. He is evidence that there are other apes out there potentially making this une planète du singe. Mm. Well, ultimately, that gives you another layer of hope for the end of the movie. This particular group of apes settle in this valley in Colorado, mm. but there's a hint that there may be other apes who have started to increase in intelligence elsewhere in the world that somehow might find out about this ape promised land and make their the own way there. I mean, this it it, it might it uh, could become a seat of a civilization, mm. but it also resembles the um civil, that there's a lake in the uh, original Planet of the Apes film that they the, the chimpanzees kind of gather their houses around. Yeah, so it's evocative of that. Although uh, in the original film, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of years into the future, or maybe their clocks were all buggered up because. Do you remember in um. <laughs> I think we mentioned this in our show. The Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. There's a year counter on in his egg 
thing that he's flying around. It's like, why why would there be a year counter in something that's not supposed to be a time machine? And then it's sort of like, it goes back in time or something. I'm just like... Why would there be a year counter in something that you are intended to leave Earth, which is the only place where a year carries any relevance? This is when... You know what? Go back and listen to our uh, uh, show on that version of Planet of the Apes. It's quite a time, folks. Mm. Also, listen to the We Hate Movie. Ep- also, listen to the We Hate Movies episode because they give it a, a monkey spanking. Bad Ape, uh, played by Steve Zahn, he's got this wonderful kind of, like, he wants to help. And and Matt Reeves pointed out that him meeting other apes that could talk like him, like, he can't do the sign language. He can just speak English from listening to other people. And he's internalized uh, a kind of, not a self-loathing, but... uh, a disappointment in himself. Mm. He keeps pointing and saying, I'm bad ape. Whenever I did anything bad, they, they, they called me bad ape. That is why I am bad ape. And he self-identifies that way. And I, I feel like Maurice needed to go, no. Good ape. At the end. You know, just mm. something. Yeah. Good, good ape. And I can imagine, like, Kazan plays it so... Like, childlike. And he looks like this little whizzled, wizened old man. Like, Smeagol without any malice at all. Yeah, I, I have to say, having never seen Steve Zahn play anything other than comedy roles, mm. he's gold in this. He's amazing. It's so sad and yet so funny in the, the things that he says and does. That and are, how he does them as well. That are just... They're just a little bit off. He's He's not... He's been around other apes so little that he can't do or th- or think or behave the way that other apes do. And yet he can't quite emulate humans perfectly either. So he's just this this poor trapped he's a bad ape thing and a bad in the human. middle. Yeah, so, so the, that he is embraced by the group and gets an opportunity to become more fully himself without letting go of those uh, those crucial elements of him that, that do make him unique. I loved the fact that when they, they go to leave, he comes out with a jacket on because he's seen... I mean, apart from the fact his hair is actually really thin, mm. so it stands to reason that he Cold. would need more cover than somebody like Caesar who has very thick fur mm. um, or Maurice or, or any of the gorillas. Or just but, that he's gotten used to wearing a parka. Well, yeah, but that's the other thing because he's observed humans. They put a layer of clothing on before they go out in the mm. snow. And at the very end, when they get to Colorado, he's still wearing his jacket and hat. There's no point where he kind of casts them off and goes, I am now fully one of the, mm. the more traditional apes. This is still him. Yeah. I see, girl, I think you human. Oh, but you ape like me. No, 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 put down. How long have you been here? Long, long time. <laughs> Home. They're more like you. More apes from zoo. Dead. All dead. Long time. 
human gets sick, ape gets smart, then human kill ape, but not me. I run. You learn to speak. Listen, human. Bad ape. No touch. That that's mine. Eat. New friends. Special day. Here, you keep. She keep. That's why I feel like he should have been called Good Ape by mm. someone. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, uh, Steve Zahn is, is really needed because we're about to get into the third act of this and it's so, this is the hard bit. Like it's hard enough seeing Caesar's loss and Circus's just shattering performance expressing through his face and movements the level of pain. It's my dead family, mm. effectively. Yeah. This is one of the only cases of my dead family where they actually handled it extremely well. Mm. Yeah, but one of the things that is is most wonderful about this, this series is it's not just circus. All the performance capture in this, all of the actors that are providing these characters are astounding. Even when their roles are very small, the way they get across what they're feeling, how they're hurting. There's a, a gorilla character called Luca who dies around this yeah. point and the, his scene of, of just passing away is so, it's subtle, but it's so clear what's happening. And even it, he's, he's interacting with no. the little girl, Nova, at this point. So you've got this this human girl and this gorilla, and they are intersecting with each other in a way that you, you just don't see the effect. You just don't see the effect at all. It is just the performance. This is what I mean. This is a film you can just look through and at the same time see the whole thing. Like you, you, you never stop and think to yourself, is that a fact? What are they using for that? You just don't care. Like you, you, it has you pretty much from the word go. And exactly the same as the other two. It is an ape hair between Dawn and Rise for me. I think, I feel like Dawn is a more astonishing movie in terms of that sense of philosophical, this could all have been prevented with negotiation. That never happens in action movies or, or blockbuster cinema. It just, it's so strange. It's not like Avatar when the, the humans touch down and you've got the um, fucking Stephen Lang. Like, he's bad news. Mm. But the way that they play the rest of the human characters in this, there's a couple of jittery ones. And if the, the ones who want peace were able to hold back and deal with and maybe get a, a new perspective and some help for the ones who can't keep their violence and fear in check, that could have ended very differently. Mm. And it's that knowledge as the, or at least the growing sense of awareness as the painting is filled out for you that this film didn't have to go this way. Yeah, well there's a reason why, that, and Lord knows, how 
hard it is for me, of all people, to say this, but there is a reason why the expressing of strong emotions is, by and large, taboo within human society. Because if you have somebody who expresses the wrong emotion too loudly and too impulsively at the wrong moment... It's off the script. Everyone loses their minds. But, but not just that. The, the consequences can be so disastrous in societies where uh, it, it's like an avalanche, just that tiny little stone, and it can build up a pressure that ends up crushing everybody. So after riding through the snowy wilderness, Caesar and company come across an internment camp. A big, grey, miserable looking prison run by this cult of soldiers. And we're probably going to kind of hop, skip and jump through the next section because this is the gruelling part, like I said. Bad Ape and Nova are really important to this film because, as we said way back when we covered uh, Rise uh, and Dawn, our little kid was really engaged with these films and was really engaged here, but the amount of sadness heaped upon the viewer is, is too intense for kids. These little bits of comedy and the fun ape things that happen just relieve it just that little bit. Just, it's, you know, it's going to be less terrible. That, that sense of everything's ruined is less potent. I'd say it's harder now to accept for kids than it would have been in 2017 because that sense of everything's ruined is outside. It's on the news, it's everywhere. And it's it's tough to get kids in particular back from that. Uh, a lot of young people are having to grow up really fucking fast right now. Mm. And it's not fair on them. Yeah. But yeah, it's an internment camp and uh, because of Caesar riding out like he did, his whole family have been caught and caged. And I suppose 2017 would have been around about the time that we got huge amounts of news about people in cages. So it would have hit hard. This film didn't do as much as film two in terms of business. The first one cost 93 million, made 481. That is a decent chunk of return. Mm. Uh, Dawn cost 170 and made 710 million. That is, that is great money when you consider how much like, a risk this was. Mm -hmm. A film where you don't want the action to happen, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, just bring me talky stuff. Let us like, have rooms full of apes talking and communicating with humans. That's the stuff we like. Oh no, no, don't bring in the tanks and the no, 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 no. Put those machine guns down. You're ruining it. More talk. That doesn't happen in cinema. It would have been awesome if Squirrel Girl had turned up in Infinity War and said, whoa, 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 hold on. Let me talk to this guy. And then talked Thanos round and gone, but you don't, don't you see that maybe uh, in trying to help, you're actually hurting people? And that, because that's what Doreen Green's like. But it wouldn't have made us marvel a billion dollars. But this made, you know, three quarters of that. 
And then War cost 150 million, so that's 20 million less, and it made 490 million, so that's 220 less, um, but with a slight modifier to the uh, amount that it cost. So it didn't make. It didn't do that thing where it, boom, all, boom, ends, boom, and everyone goes to see the third one more than the second one. That's an unusual trilogy. I would posit that there is, and I'm not saying by any means that this is the only reason, but I suspect a certain election that had recently taken place when this one came out meant that a lot of people had lost their taste for this kind of story. Woof. Woof. This is not what people would want for escape under those circumstances. Yeah, I can understand that. And coming out of the cinema... Also, a lot of the reason that you'd get that high number for Dawn is people were going back to see it. Mm. I feel like War is less um, must-see again immediately. Yes. I feel War takes so much out of you to watch that you don't go back and see it. Now, that doesn't make sense because Return of the King made more than the other two and people kept going back to see it. And yet, it's so painful to watch. Uh, I would guess that one of the reasons Return of the King got a lot of repeat business was because people wanted to be in Middle-earth just that little bit longer. Yeah. People would not want to be in this world and sustain that. You want to do a TV show that's just about the apes living by a lake and going through oh, the regular be, daily yeah, stuff? Oh, that yeah, absolutely. The last ten minutes, that would yeah. be awesome. If I could just sneak into the movie for the last ten minutes and just enjoy that lake and those mountains. Mm. Oh, yes. Especially now. That would be awesome. But, yeah, the internment camp, it was kind of supposed to be uh, related to The Great Escape. Uh, but it, it it feels much more foreboding. It's, it's mm. so dark and grim. Well, Bad Ape tells them about it. Yeah. He's their exposition and he's uh, how they found find out about this military base in the first place. But the way he describes it, he calls it a human zoo. Mm-hmm. Originally, this camp was set up for the ill. This yeah. was where they gathered and housed the people who were suffering from the virus, from that the second wave of the virus when they'd started to lose their faculties. So this is... Clearly, there was a phase where they weren't quite sure what to do with people. And ultimately, Colonel McCullough, Woody Harrelson, took the decision that they have to die. There's no other way of dealing with this. So we're talking mass grave. We don't see it. They're actually, once again, very sparing with not showing you the direct explosive violence. They show you before and they show you after, Mm. and that is right for this kind of PG-13 film that is about the consequences of violence rather than seeing the violence. There are are maybe two or three moments when somebody experiences a violent death and every time you don't see the moment of it. You do, however, get to see more than one... Not natural death, but but slower deaths, more considered seeing a person pass. Yeah. And earlier on, when they found Winter and found that he had uh, betrayed them, there's a moment where Caesar Rocket and Maurice are trying to keep him quiet and hold him back. And Caesar has his hands clamped over Winter's mouth. And the last thing he did was apologize and beg for forgiveness. And then after, like, there are people walking past the tent and they might be discovered at any minute, but there is an inflection, an inference that 
on some level, Caesar knows he is taking out a an act of vengeance upon the gorilla who led to his family's death. And when he lets go and Winter's head slumps to the side, there's that moment of, I can't believe I just did that. I was just trying to hold his mouth shut. But there's this vicious, ugly vengeance brewing inside Caesar, and it comes out of him as the hallucination of Koba, and they got back Toby Kebble to perform these moments. Koba approaches Caesar on a couple of occasions and tells him, this is the end of all things for you apes. Apes are going to die, and you're just like me. And also, you killing Winter most definitely makes you just like me. Oh, and you killed me as well. Ape killed ape. You are a bad monkey. One thing I really responded to with the way that, that Cobra is portrayed here is how he is so very, very clearly a facet of Caesar himself. Yeah, he's internalized. He's not remembering Cobra the real ape who was incredibly aggressive, incredibly Human work. And and with with very good reason, but his uh, his emotions and his expression were all violence and aggression. But here's the thing, violence and aggression are about protecting yourself. And they are an anger is it's an active emotion. It gets you up and doing. The cobra who appears to Caesar more than once in this, is is coming to him as a, a replication of despair. He's a philosophical concept. He's, exactly. He is saying to Caesar, you have now done so much wrong, let go. You can't come back from this. And this is this is Caesar telling himself... He's, te- he's using Cobra's face to say, I'm as bad as Cobra, but it's not. it doesn't manifest as anger in him. It manifests as sadness. It manifests as despair. That loss that he's felt is so great. And he's. And this is the thing. Throughout the whole trilogy, Caesar has lost and lost and lost and lost and lost. And there are things that he gave up voluntarily. He gave up will in Rise so that he could go and lead the, uh, the apes. He gave will up twice. And then we know afterwards that will died in the virus. And he's that's that's where it starts for Caesar and everything that because he has this greater comprehension, he has a a way of feeling this loss that the other apes don't not necessarily that they don't experience it the same way, but they don't articulate it the same way. They don't show it to us in the same way. But everything that he's lost has got him to a point of, I just don't want to be here anymore. This is too hard. It is too much. I have given and given and given what the fuck left else is there for me to give. And Koba is saying to him, you are right to feel that way. Let go. But there is still that tiny little piece of him that can't that cannot let go until he knows that the other apes are going to be okay. And he, and he hangs on by his fucking teeth to the very, very end when he knows they're home, when he knows they're safe and he doesn't let go until then. And at that point, no more is taken from him. He lets go himself.
as you mentioned before, the colonel sees Caesar as maybe not an equal, but someone that he can confide in. So he brings the ape before him so that he can proselytize and talk about his glorious mission and how he's going to restore humanity by this systematic eradication of everybody infected and killing every ape that he sees. And he's a monster and he's insane. And uh, Harrelson, in interview, um, talked about how he, you know, the character perceived himself. And uh, it just boils down to everyone thinks they're righteous. Uh, but this guy is is genuinely over the edge, much like Colonel Kurtz. And it relates back to something the colonel had to do when his child was afflicted with a mutated strain of this particular virus. And uh, he forced himself to do what no parent should ever, ever have to do. And quite understandable that this would drive a person way over the edge. I'm surprised he can function at all. But what he's ended up doing is shutting off that empathy side of himself and saying, I did this for rational reasons, and now everyone else must follow in my example because mm -hmm. clearly that was the right thing to do. And if I ever allow myself to not think that that was the right thing to do, my entire world will unravel. Mm. Do you know what I think would have completely broken him? And it, it doesn't happen. And I don't know whether that was a conscious choice or whether it just didn't occur to the writers that this could happen. Nova. Seeing Nova acting like a perfectly capable moving about, thinking, communicating through other means, yeah. child would really have brought home to him this was the wrong choice. And his empathy had to have been already cracking at the edges. Well, cracking well into the middle, to be fair, for him to do it in the first place. But I do think you're right that the act of, of doing it would have pushed him over the edge. Yeah. Nova, as you said, it, she breaks into the camp and the, uh, the apes have turned their back on Caesar and she brings him water to drink and then grain to eat just as, as a I just want to help kind of way just to illustrate and she's so nurturing in this behavior and everybody else is kind of watching this exchange take place and they start to see their leader again mm. and they start to, to get a little bit of hope as there's a plan to break out mm. there's there's something very symbolic about what she brings him and in what order though the first thing that she gives him is the doll yeah. because before anything else he needs comfort mm. and she sees that and then she asks him if he's thirsty mm. and he says yes that's one of the first signs she learned from Maurice is thirsty and she then brings him water because he has asked for it comfort she recognizes he needs without any prompt water he asks for and the food specifically she fetches it from the other apes she goes to them and they give her some of the grain that they've been given to take to Caesar she is gradually bringing him sustenance and nourishment from his people they restore their leader through her absolutely yeah she's the connective tissue between the two cages I think you're right about the, the fact that Nova the, the colonel needed to witness Nova to start to really crumble. I feel like that actually, in a way, it does happen, but in much more of a kind of a, ah, way. Like, the, he picks up the doll and then walks off with it thinking about it, and the doll is covered in uh, drops of her blood, which is infectious, and he ends up contracting the second strain himself, and uh, his higher cognitive faculties fail him. But because he's been going about his business with 
this is a fate worse than death. Nova, romping around the place, totally getting on with all the apes and living a happy life for someone who's been raised in this post-apocalypse, mm. challenges that on every fundamental level. This is a holy war. All of human history has led to this moment. If we lose, be the last of our kind. It will be a planet of apes. And we will become your cattle. Look at you. You think I'm sick, don't you? I didn't mean to kill your son. But if his destiny to inherit your unholy kingdom. I'm glad I did. So emotional! And see how conflicted you are. You're confused in your purpose. You were angry at me for something I did that was an act of war. But you're taking this all much too personally. What do you think my men would have done to your apes if you'd killed me? Or is killing me more important? It's never made clear how old his son was, is it? He says initially he was off with the soldiers. Right. So I assumed that he was an adult and was just with the unit. But the only picture we ever see of him is a child. I feel sorry for him. I felt sorrier for Tallahassee in uh, Zombieland. Mm, yeah, but it is, it is a very similar frame, actually. There's a, there's a parallel between the colonel and the way he deals with his unit... Caesar and how he deals with his group and Gary Oldman and how he dealt with his Not even a name. settlement. <laughs> Can't remember the name of the character. I do apologise. You um, cannot negotiate with an ape when your head is already in its mouth. Give that man an Oscar. Yes. Oh, Dreyfus. Okay. Oh my God. What a fucking betrayal. What? <laughs> yeah. He got best uh, actor for The Darkest Hour in the year when Circus should have got it for Caesar for his final performance. <laughs> so basically, uh, Oldman, who was fantastic in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, went off and said, one of us is going to be getting best actor. May the best ape win, Andy. And then fucked off and played Winston Churchill. And he was like, I have them, Andy. Hair and teeth, hair and teeth. Prestigious British personality. They love that. They don't care about the apes. They don't care about the apes, Andy. Andy had hair and teeth. It's just that the hair was CG and you couldn't see the teeth because they blended them out. Digital hair and teeth. Not the same thing at all, Andy. <laughs> well, the teeth were real. They did give him a teeth prosthesis so that it would affect how he spoke. Right, enough. I'm off to play Mank. <laughs> Anyway, you're rat. My point being, <laughs> there's a there's a juxtaposition between uh, the way Caesar talks to his the, the his like council, and they all are very quiet and they listen to him and they give him their opinions calmly, and then Caesar makes a decision. 
And they sh they kind of frame that against Gary Oldman, who has this crowd of loud, obnoxious... Shit kickers. Opinion-having humans who just yell and yell and yell and yell and yell. And this is the, what they want, and they're not going to shut up. And he says something to them about I later on about, I can't just go out there with a, with a loud hailer and tell them how it's going to be. They want things. As their leader, I have to get them things. He's much more like Jim Gordon here. Yeah. But again, that has that wonderful, heartbreaking moment where he's looking at the now finally repowered iPad mm. and, and you don't hear a family. word of explanation but he's just looking through photographs of his family memories he hasn't encountered this sharply for years and his heart is breaking yeah absolutely and then he ends up basically detonating a bomb that will kill all the apes mm. because he can't let go of his resentment same as cobra yeah absolutely but the point being that the third iteration of this person in charge of a group mm. is the colonel and he is almost like a, a combination of the two because he's got a group of humans that are all loud and opinion-having, mm -hmm. but he's used that. He's uh, corralled that yeah. and channeled it and is using it to direct them where he wants them to go and what he wants them to do. Interestingly, on the cast list, Toby Kebbell for Dawn comes fifth. He's the second most important person in that film. Mm -hmm. you got Gary Oldman in fourth, Kerry Russell in third, Andy Serkis obviously in first, and Jason Clarke is literally Malcolm in the middle. Bless him. I love making friends with apes. Yeah, I'm going to take the uh, subway here, listen to a podcast. No headphones for me. <laughs> I hope you all like Mark Marin on this L train. Boy, he is a delight. <laughs> In a deleted scene, we find out that Malcolm uh, was uh, a man who came to the colonel and, and asked, you know, please, could you spare these apes? They're good. We can negotiate with them. And the colonel killed him. So that gives Caesar just one extra reason mm. to, uh, um, to take out this sick, obsessed, extremely dangerous man who cannot and will not ever negotiate and can't see any reason for people to live unless they're going to live by this very strict doctrine. Which brings us to... The finale of this film. It's, a, it's an ape escape and they, um, they tunnel their way out. Uh, and then there's an intervention from the military, the ones that we mentioned before, who are um, uh, just trying to take out this, this crazed wing who keep killing people. Uh, now that does give me just a smidgen of hope because it suggests that the military themselves wouldn't just summarily execute everybody who uh, was suffering from the second form of the uh, virus. Or is it simply because they're not listening to orders anymore and if they're uncontrollable they have to be taken out? Honestly, they leave it deliberately vague. Yeah. But the you're left in no doubt that the, the, way... the white-hatted military would still kill Caesar without really thinking Oh, absolutely, because Caesar stands up at the end and the first thing they do is go, oh, ape, Yeah, you want ape, gun, and then avalanche. Yeah, nature's going to wipe and these Caesar guys out. And Caesar just snowboards just... down the avalanche. They, they, they don't have any hope going up against the natural world because they will not come together and work as a as a group in harmony with the world. That is the bottom line. They're doomed one way or another. But... The way the colonel frames it is that they 
felt he was too extreme. Now that suggests to me that they had some kind of mass extermination plan or something, something or, or they'd not come to that conclusion, but they also hadn't completely ruled it out. Um, and the colonel started doing it anyway. It's uh, effectively they certainly didn't have a way to bring humans back to where yeah. they wanted to be. They're Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now being sent down river to take out Colonel Kurtz. That entire army is Martin Sheen. Basically, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and there's another character called Preacher who... And again, the, the deleted... This is a two-hour, 20 film. And the deleted scenes were 27 minutes. That is an incredibly long film. And... Watching them, I'm like, I completely understand why this was trimmed out. It doesn't strengthen the film. In terms of the character of Preacher, he's the guy with the crossbow at the beginning that Caesar spares his life and sends him back uh, on a on a horse uh, to the colonel so that he can live. He hopes that he'll be friends with him. And then Preacher says, I'm not friends with you, you fucking ape. And then Caesar feels that loss. So then at the end... Preacher is the one who fires the crossbow, which is like Chekhov's crossbow. We keep seeing it repeatedly throughout this, this sort of Damocles hanging over the, uh, Caesar. Eventually, he finally gets him in the side, which is the wound that takes Caesar out for good. But what they removed was, I thought you were my friend. We're not friends, ape. Just that flip-flop, that didn't matter. Also, there was a whole bunch of stuff about throwing a key back and forth and getting the key and getting the other key. And ultimately, they concluded in the edit suite, people don't care about keys. People care about people. People care about characters. They they focus that. And so even though this is a long film, you don't really feel it. It never drags. Although, like I said, it is grueling. I said the first film feels like a much more heartfelt version of Jurassic Park from the dinosaur's point of view. Um, and then it, by the end here, it starts to just n nudge into Schindler's List territory in, in the whole, we are not only uh, interning you here, but we want to break your spirit and beat you and thrash you and shoot you and just wreck you to establish our dominance. Mm. There is a practical element to that as well, though. It does come across initially because the apes don't know why they're being made to work. They're basically breaking rocks and, and moving rocks around and building a wall. And it does feel, to begin with, like it's just to wear them out and, cr and unnecessarily cruel. Like, if you don't want them around, just kill them all. What's the point of, of making them do all of this? They have to build the wall because they're building a wall around California because that's where the virus broke out. Dude, it's been 15 years. The, no, the wall is not for the virus. The wall is for the fact that uh, McCullough knows the military are coming for him. He needs his defences shoring up. Well, the wall didn't work. No, it they didn't. flew in on Apache helicopters, yes. flew over his fucking wall, yes, and shot did. him with missiles. Absolutely. The wall, I suspect, is entirely... Um, it's just symbolic of symbolic a pathetic in his mind. Uh, attempt to keep out the thing you don't want. Yeah, absolutely. Even though the thing you don't want is no respecter of any kind of wall that you could possibly build. Yeah. There's a message in that. There is. Maybe for me, I think the only point of the film that's troublesome is because these apes movies have been wildly influential on me. I started writing Cartographer's Handbook in 2013 after having seen Rise in 2011. And we said during Dawn that this was more like World War Z than the World War Z movie was. 
At least they're not desperately trying to find a cure.、Mm. But the whole negotiation, trying to talk out of disastrous, catastrophic violence, that is threaded through、mm. New Century. These movies mean a hell of a lot to me, and there have been several scenarios which seem oddly similar. The Thomas and Frederick scenario I wrote in 2013, and then four years later, the Colonel comes out with a scenario that's similar, only he went the other way, and. Caesar has now reached the end of his road, and he says to Rocket, "Go, go with the other apes, get them to safety, take them to the the, the promised land. Do it without me. I'm, I am like Cobra. I can't let this go." And he becomes an arbiter of vengeance. And Rocket is just this fantastic Terry Notary acting. He was Buck the dog in the,、uh, Call of the Wild.、Um, just he doesn't want to let Caesar go off on this. But ultimately, he has to respect his wishes, and then Caesar goes up to see the Colonel, who's now being ignored by his men while they're busy fighting a war against apes and humans.、Um, and he finds the Colonel's handgun, and I—it didn't bother me when I saw it in the cinema. It didn't even bother me when I saw it again recently. It, it was the the most recent time when we watched it with commentary that I started to think, "Hang on a second." Something about this really bothers me, and I couldn't quite place a finger on it. And eventually, it boiled down to the scenario is treated by the film as a binary decision. It's not a binary decision, and that actually relates to a lot of decisions that Caesar has made in the past. He goes to kill the colonel. The colonel is now unable to. Communicate in speech. He has been、uh, reduced to the、uh, intelligence of what we would perceive an ape to be. And、uh, when Caesar's bearing down on him, he's pointing the pistol, just wrathful face, like "You killed my wife. You killed my child. You ended my future. You killed that from me." So yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. And then slowly. Harrelson sort of ends up sort of like reaching up to pull the gun to his own temple to say, "Yeah, do it, do it. Just take me out of this. This is the fate worse than death that I have been afraid of." And Caesar, and this was Andy Circus's idea, so I don't know what the original script was. It was just uh, um, noted by Matt as he was doing his、um, commentary, and that's probably what tripped me. Andy decided maybe instead of shooting him. Caesar puts the gun down beside him, and then gives the colonel the responsibility for ending his own life. And he stands there and watches him do it. Now, this is troublesome for many, many reasons. I I can barely uh, uh, work out how to begin. This is probably going to be what feels longer than is required for just a few seconds. But it is the philosophical end of the movie. In every film where the hero spares. An enemy in war. I said this when we talked about、um, Saving Private Ryan and、uh, 1917. There are there are scenarios in those films where the、uh, hero or the heroes deliberately spare a Nazi or a soldier of the Prussian Empire in, in 1917, and are punished for it. It's like if you allow a Nazi to live, they will come back and kill you. And that seems to be the remit of these movies. Do not 
it's almost advising people, do not ever let a Nazi go, they'll come back, they're liars, they'll kill you. Thou shalt not suffer a fascist to live. That's it. And while soldiers of the Prussian Empire are not Nazis, in the film 1917 they're depicted as an army that will not negotiate and want you dead. And that's what we have here. There's no reason why Caesar giving the colonel this gun would not result in the colonel shooting Caesar in a you fucking idiot, you fucking gave me the gun, fine, I'll shoot you. Because that's how movie language works. This unrepentant monster would shoot Caesar. It, the way it works is Caesar gives him the gun and then that's the merciful act and then he walk, turns and walks away and then there's a gunshot and you think, oh, the colonel's killed himself. And then Caesar sort of buckles a little bit and you realize the colonel shot him in the back. And the film could have gone that way. Or it goes the other way, where you think, oh shit, the colonel shot him, and the colonel had shot himself. Which is effectively what actually happens, only Caesar stands and watches him. There is a difference between wrath, which is what he was going to inflict, you killed my family, so I will kill you, and mercy, which is Caesar realizing that this man has become something that he is terrified of and he wants to die. If you actually observe the actions, Harrelson's character cocks back the hammer to say, look, just do it, I am helping you here, this is what I actually want. And a mercy would be for Caesar's face to go from fury to a sense of resignation and, okay, I will give you this. In between those two, there is apathy, wherein Caesar looks at this pathetic creature that the colonel has become, throws the gun out of the window, and then walks away, as though to say, this is your bed, you lie in it. It's also notable that the colonel has been drinking a lot of high concentration alcohol at this point. He's maybe not in his right mind, even in his depleting state. So we've got wrath then apathy, then mercy, and then what Caesar actually does, which is devotion. Devotion and total trust of his hated enemy. I'm going to give you the gun and trust that you will take care of your own life and you won't shoot me. My problem with this is that outside, Caesar's apes are all being shot to pieces and they need him. When he said goodbye to Rocket, his point was, I'm gone. I am too far gone down this path. I am filled with hate. I can't resolve it. I have to go and become the arbiter of this vengeance. If Caesar had been gripped with this wrath and then seen that the colonel wanted to die and then heard the cries of his family and just been ever so slightly distracted and then realized, oh no, actually my life has value. My life has a lot of value. I have to go to them right now. That's also a very powerful scene. And he can then commit an act of mercy in accordance with the Colonel's wishes. Then you have the problem with the fact that just because the Colonel thinks that if you are suffering from this virus, you deserve to die, that doesn't make it right. In fact, the whole movie and the existence and behavior of Nova actually proves that really fucking wrong and that he's been wrong the whole time. Caesar needed to illustrate to him, and this is how I, I mimed it to you. Kneel down throw the gun out the window, like I said again, and then have the colonel be like, ah, like, I wanted you to kill me. And then Caesar just lay a hand on his shoulder 
and pass him a bottle of water. And possibly even do the thirsty gesture, which again was a significant sign for Nova learning. To illustrate to this colonel, this is not necessarily the end for you. You've been telling yourself this lie because you can't live with the truth of it. Caesar needs to simply illustrate that he understands the colonel, that he acknowledges that perhaps he does deserve to die for everything that he's done. But both man and ape have rejected life in their despair. But Caesar, from his advantageous position, can impart to the man that there is a way out of this despair and that vengeance and blame don't help anyone live. And that brought me back to various times that Caesar has made this difficult decision with different characters in the series. Wrath and trying to kill the colonel, he did that with Coba at the end of Dawn. Coba says, ape must not kill ape, and Caesar, being looked at by everyone, says, you are not ape, and then lets him go. He kills Coba by dropping him, and Coba falls screaming like a pig in a war to his death. And Caesar has committed an act of wrath, but the film doesn't stand in judgment over him for doing that. The film says Coba was a wrong'un, he was never going to not be filled with this hatred, and he was only ever going to make things worse. He killed Rocket's son to terrify the rest of the apes, prevent anybody from questioning him, and forcing them to help him kill all humans. But this goes back to, on in the, the end of the first film, in on the Golden Gate Bridge, when he sees Jacobs, who has hurt and hurt Cobra, and Caesar, he's in a crashed helicopter and Caesar could save him, but instead he turns around and walks away and says, I, you know, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And then evil Cobra comes along and goes, <laughs> and kicks the helicopter into the sea with Jacobs in it, screaming like a pig in a war. So that's apathy. Then with Mercy, back when Caesar was in the ape enclosure in the first film, he threw dodge wicked draco malfoy into a cage and then a bunch of apes were beating on poor rodney who was the other guy who uh didn't appear to have all of his mental faculties uh, but was there as a helper at the ape enclosure they start beating him to death and caesar shoes them off him picks up rodney and gently guides him into a cage as though to say no no no, no. you don't deserve this doesn't even allow them to beat dodge to death then locks Rodney in, temporarily for his own safety, not to keep him captive. Effectively ensuring that this mercy is carried out. Then Dodge gets out and starts grabbing the taser and is going to try to fight and kill Caesar yet again because he just can't accept it. And Caesar uses the hose on him, which is again an act of mercy. He didn't know the combination of electricity and rushing water was going to fucking fry him, but it does. And then when it does, Caesar is shaken by that act. He was trying to commit an act of mercy, but ended up inadvertently committing an act of wrath, and it sticks with him, which then affects him in Dawn. And then halfway through Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Koba attacks him in front of all the other apes in the power plant to establish dominance. Caesar beats him, and Koba says, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have tried to attack you, and immediately goes to supplication. And Caesar, against his best judgments, allows that supplication and commits an act of not only mercy on Koba, but utter devotion. He doesn't say, you know what, Koba? No, I sense in, like, from what you've said, from your actions, from your desperation, 
I can now see you are never going to heal from this. I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to let you go. You are out of this. You are out of this group. And he needed to then tell all the other apes, don't listen to Koba. He's intent on starting a war. That way, when Koba then gets guns and shoots Caesar, like that same thing could still have happened. But then if he comes in front of all the uh, uh, apes and, and says, they're humans, they shot Caesar. All the other apes are like, we've been told not to trust you, Koba. Mm. But instead he allows total devotion and trust in the same way he does here with his hated enemy. Mm. Is that in part, and, and this is more an observation of what happens with Koba than it is of what happens with the Colonel, but is that in part because it doesn't occur to Caesar at that point that apes can deceive? that Koba could be lying. He needed to look back on that moment as a moment of trust mm. because he's extending this absolute trust to someone who is not in his right mind, was not in his right mind before he got the, the secondary strain, mm. then got drunk, is now mentally impaired by disease and on every level believes his entire world is ending. There's no reason that he doesn't shoot Caesar, aside from the fact that the film doesn't want him to, and that thing I said about just letting these people go and then they come back and shoot you, mm -hmm. that is precisely what happens with Preacher. He lets him go at the beginning, Preacher comes back with a crossbow and shoots him in the side, the bolt that finishes him off. Yeah. Two and a half minutes from now, with a different person he trusted with absolute devotion. Now, philosophically, absolutely yes, he should go from being wrathful to being merciful. That is the journey Caesar needs to make from, from, you know what, it is not worth taking me out of this and just burying myself in this grave of vengeance. From what Matt Reeves said in the commentary, I'm speculating, but I suspect the original plan was to have Caesar leave the gun on the corner of the desk yeah. and then just leave. Caesar doesn't ever want to kill anyone ever again mm. at this stage. Yeah. And he doesn't want to be responsible for this. He then goes on to cause an explosion that kills loads of guys. Yeah. So again, this doesn't really <laughs> scan. Yeah, because that, that ultimately was the, the part of it that came through the most strongly to me, was the, I don't want to kill anymore, this, this is one too far, and I, I just, my soul is more important at this stage than you. This is not about you, this is about me. But you are absolutely right that he then comes back and... Gets and it's, it's a massive hero moment because he's Lasty saving glassy. the lives of a load of apes. Mm, Effectively, the colonel could no longer inflict this damage yeah. and could no longer, like, he no longer posed a threat. Ergo, Caesar definitely didn't have to kill him. Yeah. It's so messy. It is so difficult. And that's what puts this third film, for me, below the first two, which are magnificent and cogent the whole way through. Mm. It's only one moment, but it's. It's the moment of Caesar's zenith. It's his his philosophical transformation. It's the pivot at the end, and therefore it, it needs to be. He wants to kill him out of wrath, but then he takes pity on him, and then he shoots him. Same result, but a very significant change of heart. Or he does what I said earlier, which is to toss the gun out the window, kneel down, give him water, effectively offering him life and saying, this is what a leader does. You no longer pose a threat. There is no reason for me to kill you. The beauty of Caesar throwing the gun out of the window is he's rejecting the symbol of the power grab. These weapons that killed his family, this ability humans have to end ape lives. It's him laying down, we should not be like you. 
Way back to the original Planet of the Apes, even the friggin' Tim Burton Planet of the Apes equated firearms with the worst side of man. And that's it. Ultimately, at the end, uh, Don Red Donkey, who has been this um, the, the, a, a gorilla who served the humans, sees Caesar dashing towards the uh, Alpha and Omega bomb, which is this giant red barrel that the. Um, I was going to say, it, it, they keep. Do they actually refer to it as a bomb in this? It, it's not it a just bomb. seems like a big tank of petrol. It's a big generator. Okay. And uh, it's the, Caesar works out that if he takes out this generator, he can take out the guy who's firing on his family with a fucking helicopter machine gun and in the end he gets shot in the side with a uh, with, with the crossbow bolt that we mentioned before and uh, Red Donkey sees Caesar fighting for his family and begin and reconnects in that brief moment with the kind of ape he should have been all along and he uses the grenade launcher that he's being shouted at to get to turn Preacher into blood mist before Preacher can finish Caesar off. Caesar blows up the tanks and there's an immense explosion and um, it, the locals for miles around were like, are you actually like blowing our land up? It's like, no, it's for a movie, we swear. The humans who were attacking the out of control military unit all cheer and you know, they're all wearing like faceless masks, you can't see their faces and then um, uh, and they have triggered through the, this explosion a massive avalanche which then sweeps down the mountainside taking out all the humans but the apes in a scene reminiscent from the very original where they end up climbing to those treetops in the redwood forest climb up above the avalanche and survive while the indifference of nature which we often label cruel but it has it does not have that intention behind it yeah just takes mankind out in a single swoop. And then they make their exodus. Again, extremely biblical. And Caesar's with his family and then gets to sit and watch them at peace at the end. And it is one of the most heartbreaking, but hopeful and overwhelming, but peaceful scenes shot on film. He gets his own vine and fig tree, even if it's only for a moment. Yeah. And an actress we haven't really talked about all that much, um, Karen Conneval, uh plays Maurice. Now, actually, I was, I've been storing this up and it's going to step on our sad point here, but this is not a great film series for women. Like, If you are a female uh, actor who is given a role in one of the Planet of the Apes films, you are basically going to be something to Caesar and then killed. <laughs> Uh, we've got the lovely uh, Freda Pinto in the uh, uh, the first film, sort of assists uh, James Franco's will. Uh, we've got Kerry Russell in the second film, who was uh, sort of just there as a healer, in with Jason Clarke and Cody Smith-McPhee as a kind of a proto-human family that Caesar can value. Um, Judy Greer plays Cornelia, the, Caesar's wife in, in both films. Gets kidnapped in Rise. Yep. Gets uh, executed. Has a baby in Dawn and dies in... Yeah. Uh, war. And my question was, um, Karen Carnival playing uh, Maurice, why couldn't Maurice just have been female? The whole way through, it, um, Maurice is Caesar's closest confidant. Maurice is smart enough at the beginning 
uh, was it a circus ape originally? Uh, Maurice was an ang- orangutan who was with a circus, yes. Yeah. So the, the circus people mm. actually taught him sign language. I'm going to gender Maurice he, because in the context of the film it is a he. Well, the design of Maurice is very specifically those uh, big um, cheek dishes yeah. that he has and the are, and the and the yeah the the throat pouch mm. are male orangutan characteristics yeah they're to say to the females look i've lived to this age and i've clearly got i know my stuff so you definitely want this orangutan being the father of your young i got the good dna yeah um and and like i said uh, maurice knows signs so can communicate with caesar immediately and is a really well-placed character in the film to allow caesar to start to feel for the rest of the apes but there's no reason that Maurice didn't have, couldn't have been female the whole way through. That ultimately that Caesar could have had a really great female friend and confident and effectively low grey or um, mm. Merlin even. Just the the. Mm. Uh, well, Maurice is absolutely their. He's their priest. He's their druid. He's their teacher. Mm. He remembers history. He teaches the children how to communicate. He's the keeper of the the rules. He writes, "Ape shall not kill ape on the wall." So all of that stuff that goes with the the heart and soul of a community comes through Maurice. Yeah. Who was, of course, named after Maurice Evans, who played Dr. Zaius in the first Planet of the Apes. But Dr. Zaius was an asshole. So Maurice is very different in this capacity. I feel like Maurice was written at a time when they didn't particularly, they weren't thinking, we've got to make sure that there's some decent female representation in these films. And then was ne- they were never added to mm. at any point. Well, it's... I think it's a little bit frustrating when you look at it from that perspective because there is absolutely no reason why many of the apes that have active roles in the story couldn't have been female. There's very little difference in terms of of how they stand and how they move and how they look and how they behave. Feasibly, Cobra could have been female? Feasible. No reason why not. I, I feel like Rocket needed to be male because he acts like a dumbass bully to begin with and then learns a, a hard lesson. By being given cookies. Yeah. Um, I got a cookie for you. I, I got a cookie But for you. I think ultimately what it comes down to is that the, the gender is not all that important for the way that the story is told. And therefore the statement that's made by having all of the key ape characters be male and the only females present are there for child producing and rearing is kind of making a statement in and of itself even if it's just that it didn't occur to you to do it any other way yeah kim hunter as zira in multiple apes films is really good arguably the best actor Although Roddy McDowell is also excellent in in those early Apes films, mm. they they tap dance all over Charlton Heston, mm. who just kind of farts around the place being macho guy. Yeah. I'd just like to pause for a moment before the end to thank our sponsors at the top tier on our Patreon, who get a little shout out every week. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman. Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, 
Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Haskell, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And we would urge every single one of you folks listening to come along to www.firesidealliance.com to check out the new all-inclusive media network we have going on now with an amazing bunch of people, Chris Chipman, The Two Shrinks Pod, Marissa Alexa McCool, Geeks with Shields, Montresor Media, Cinema Spection, Leftover Army Monsters, Through the Wind Door, and Recorded Tomorrow. The centerpiece of this community of communities is the shared Discord. Come talk about movies and everything else you love. Apes together strong. But I do, I did notice and appreciate that as they filter into the valley at the end, some of the apes are visibly pregnant. Yeah. And so it's good that these walking wombs get to they, achieve know, their life's ambition. I know, I know. But it does indicate that there is a future for this group. Yeah, I know. And that's something that that Caesar made a point of, of saying to them in Dawn, that the things they fought for are home and family and future. Yeah. Uh, the reason I say this now is that Maurice and Karen Carnival boosts the ending. Like, it was going to be sad watching Caesar smiling upon his family and then slowly slipping away if he was on his own. But the fact that Maurice gets to talk to him and realizes the extent of the damage, and we go through all of that with Maurice. We go from fear to denial to, you know, just straight jumping straight over bargaining and anger and, and reach acceptance quickly but in a way that feels very natural. And it's, there's so much eye acting going on and, and so much of that performance just comes from Karen. And she and Andy working together just make this scene stratospheric. The final shot after, after Caesar has allowed himself to let go and Maurice has said goodbye there's a moment as the camera starts to pan up and you just get this little there's a there's a fraction of a second when rocket and lake lake is the uh, mate of um, blue eyes yeah. caesar's who's, now deceased who son but she's looking after cornelius yeah. as who's effectively not her blood but just she has this maternal side to her yeah um but they realise what's happened as, as Maurice starts to, to keen and cry out and they come over to say their own farewells and it, the camera carries on up and then you get this shot of the blue sky. And it was just this sense of... It's almost the payoff of what started with the avalanche, which is that whatever battles and conflicts are going on down on the ground, that sky is still there. That sky doesn't change. And it gave it this wonderful sense of continuity. And it also returns us to the very beginning. The very beginning, 
there's a bunch of apes hanging out in the wild, not hurting anyone, and then humans turn up and snatch away Bright Eyes, who is uh, Caesar's mother, and they fuck everything up. And then we, the movies effectively take us from humans fucking everything up to humans no longer being able to fuck everything up, and those apes get left back alone, now far more well-equipped to survive and thrive in the world. This is exceptional filmmaking. And Michael Giacchino's amazing score. There's a piece of music called The Great Ape Processional in the... in Dawn. It's this one that's playing right now. And then there's Exodus Wounds, the song of loss. But he plays one across the other and just combines the two at the end and changes the tone of it to be a conclusion that is dramatic, but it's restrained, expressive, and compassionate. And thus concludes the new Planet of the Apes trilogy. So much better than anyone could have hoped. And again, my guess is that in the next 10 years or so, we will see more Apes films that stem from this new continuity. And I hope as many of the creators as possible return to shepherd the new breed through their philosophical journeys. And even if that never happens, we can all be content with these three magnificent, frequently heartbreaking stories about not even humanity, because that word can barely touch this unnameable experience of existing between the emotions associated with what it feels like to care deeply. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. Out.